Thank you for the scripture reading. We're very grateful for the opportunity to be together tonight. We're going to be looking at the book of Haggai, chapter 1, as we think about the theme, Back to Work. And the songs that we have been singing tonight have all been associated with our work in the kingdom. And as God's people, we are to be involved in the work of the kingdom. Paul said in Ephesians 2 at verse 10 that we have been created in Christ Jesus unto good works. And so those of us who are members of the body of Christ, we are to be involved, we are to be working, we are to be active in his service. As Paul would say in Galatians chapter 6, we are not to be weary in well-doing. For the Bible says, we shall reap in due season if we do not faint. And so all of us want to go to heaven. We want to be with God in eternity, and we want to do everything within our power to bring others to Christ. I want us to look at Haggai chapter 1 tonight. The book of Haggai really, I believe, accentuates the importance of work. And in this context, what we're going to be talking about tonight, emphasis is on getting back to work. And we'll see that in just a moment or two. I want to just make mention of the fact that our gospel meeting is coming up, as was announced a moment ago, in two weeks. Two weeks from today, we will already have the first day of our meeting behind us. Brother Alan Harris will be with us on the 22nd. On Monday evening, we will meet again at 7 p.m. And Brother James Seegers will be with us on Tuesday evening, Brother Keith Mosher, and then Wednesday evening, Brother Billy Bland. And I hope that you're making plans to be a part of our meeting. I hope that you will encourage your friends and family members to come and be a part of our meeting. We want to do everything that we can to make this gospel meeting a success. And so I would encourage you to be praying about the meeting, praying for those who will be speaking, and also do everything that you can to encourage others to come and to be a part of this great week. And we want to fill this building with souls. We want to see as many people come as humanly possible. And we want to particularly reach out to those who are not members of the church because we're interested in the lost. And what they need is to have the opportunity to hear the gospel. And so I would encourage you to do that. Jared mentioned, I think, Wednesday night, if all of us would take five flyers and hand those out to our neighbors, that if we would do that, I think we would have great success. And so I want to encourage you to do that and to uh, follow up with what he said. Tonight as we look at the book of Haggai, there are some parallels in looking at the work that the people were involved in in the, day, in the days of Haggai and the work that we are involved in today as members of the body of Christ. As we think about the theme, back to work, when I look at the church here at Olive Branch, I think all of us all of us are mindful of the fact that we have made great strides in the last few years. Not long ago, I had the opportunity to visit with Brother George in his home and sat down and talked to George and Carolyn and Doris. And Brother George had some, some bulletins from years past, going back to about 2007. And he was sharing those bulletins with me and he was emphasizing our attendance figures. And we have come a long way. And I'm grateful for the success that we have had. But we have by no means arrived. We are not where we want to be. And when I look at the work of the church, 
I see the church as an institution that is constantly on the move. And when you look at the church at Jerusalem and you look at the great success that took place in the first century, I do not believe they ever reached a point where they said, we've arrived. And I would hope and pray that we never reach a point here at Olive Branch where we have the idea we have arrived. There are always things to do. There are always souls to reach out to and strive to save. And so we're going to be talking about that in our study tonight. I want you to consider with me, first of all, the apathy of the people. As we look at Haggai chapter 1, what Haggai is addressing is a spirit of complacency. And what we want to do is, first of all, look at the background to what Haggai is talking about. If you look at the history of the Israelite nation, you'll find that God's people had been exiled into captivity. They spent some 70 years in Babylonian captivity. Nebuchadnezzar had come in with his army and had literally sacked the city, the southern kingdom, and taken them away into captivity. Well, some 70 years later, Cyrus, who was the king of the Medes and the Persians, he encouraged and allowed the people of God to return to their homeland and to begin rebuilding the temple. And the, the background to, to their efforts is taken from Ezra chapters 4 through 6. In chapter 3, in verse 1, the Bible tells us that the people were together as one. And I think that's significant. When you look at their efforts to begin rebuilding the temple, they were together as one. Whatever we do as a congregation, we have to do it together as one. And the reason is, if the devil can divide us, he can conquer us. Jesus said in Matthew 12, verse 25, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. And so the old adage, divide and conquer. In chapter 3, verse 10 of the book of Ezra, the Bible tells us that they laid the foundation of the temple. However, when you drop down and begin looking at chapter 4 and read on through chapter 6, you'll find that what occurred, opposition began, and as a result of that opposition, God's people simply quit. And thus, they became complacent. About 16 years elapsed before God called on two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. And God instructed these prophets to light a fire under his people so that they would rebuild the temple, so they would go back to work, so that they would finish the project. That occurred in about 520 B.C. In about 516 B.C., the temple was completed. But that is a short summary of the background to what we're talking about. But as we think about the background, I want you to consider the behavior of God's people. Look, if you would, at chapter 1, verse 2 in the book of Haggai. In chapter 1, verse 2, here's what the prophet said on behalf of God. Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says, The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. They had been, they had been allowed to go back home to rebuild the temple. They laid the foundation, 
and then opposition occurred and they quit. Now as we talk about the behavior of the children of Israel, let me give you two very specific things that Haggai addresses. First of all, the materialism of the people. As we think about the materialism of the people, look at verse four. Well, look at verse three. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Sometimes we become complacent. We become satisfied with where we are. It's highly likely that these people had become comfortable. Things were going well and so they just ceased in their efforts. And I think sometimes materialism can blind us to spiritual things. We fail to see what's really important in life and that's one of the dangers of materialism in and of itself. Jesus said, take heed and beware of covetousness. For a man's life consists not in the abundance of the things he possesses. In Luke 12, verse 15. But now I want you to note the misery of the people. Drop down and look, if you would, at verse 6. In verse 6, here's what the prophet said. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but do not have enough. You drink, but are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earn, earns wages to put it into a bag with holes. And then look at verse nine. You look for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, it, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts, because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you withhold the dew and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain and the new wine and on the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock and on all the labor of your hands. Really what happened, if you look back and, and begin to, to peer into the historical side of this, they had become complacent, they had become self-satisfied, and so they, they were literally running in place. I like what Haggai says. They were putting their money in pockets that had holes in them. It was going out the back door as quick as it was coming in the front door. And that's one of the dangers. When, when people become materialistic, misery sometimes follows. And in this case, that was, that was evident. They had become apathetic as a result of the rebuilding project. And so what did God do? Well, God said, you look for much, it came to little. I want you to look with me, if you would, to the admonition to the people. As we think about the admonition to the people, we're really talking about the command that was given by God through Haggai the prophet. As we think about this command, first there is the evaluation. Go back and look at chapter 1. At verse 5, in verse 5, here's what the prophet said. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Drop down and look at verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Two times in chapter 1, God says to the people, I want you to consider your ways. There are two things I want to emphasize here. First of all, where do I stand individually? When Haggai the prophet spoke on behalf of God, he said, consider your ways. You can look at that two ways. 
individually and collectively. Individually, where do, we, where do I stand? I think all of us, from time to time, we need to take spiritual inventory of our own lives. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. It's good sometimes to take spiritual inventory of your life. These people needed, needed to take inventory of where they were in the overall scheme of things. God said, I want you to consider your ways. And then collectively, look at what he says, consider your ways. God here through the prophet is saying to the nation, I want you to to evaluate your ways. Is it not the case that individually speaking today that we would do well to take inventory of our lives? The answer would be yes. What about collectively? Look at Revelation chapters two and three. In Revelation chapters two and three, you have Jesus Christ analyzing the seven churches of Asia Minor. And Jesus Christ peers into every congregation. There were seven congregations placed under a divine microscope. Two of those congregations escaped any type of divine censor. Four of those congregations, there were things positive said about them, and there were things negative said about them. One congregation, Laodicea, nothing good was said. They had become lukewarm, apathetic, and God said, I will spew you out of my mouth. And so I think it's good for congregations to collectively evaluate where they are. I would ask this question, where do, we, where do we stand tonight? Where are we as a congregation of people? It's one thing to ask, where are you? It's another thing to ask, where are we? Are we where we need to be? Are we where we want to be? Are we where we should be? I think those are valid questions. Those are questions that all of us ought to ask collectively and yes, even individually. What about you spiritually? Are you where you ought to be? Are you where you should be? Are you where you want to be? Those are questions that only you can answer as an individual, as a congregation. I guess we could pool our resources and we could begin to take inventory. But nothing escapes the all-seeing eye of Almighty God. Solomon said in the long ago, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Jesus in Revelation chapter two said that he is the one who searches the minds and the hearts and thus gives to every man according to his work or deeds. Now I want you to look, if you would, at the exhortation. We note the evaluation, but what about the exhortation? Drop down and look at verse eight. Well, go back and look at verse seven. In verse seven, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Now, verse eight, go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take, that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. When you look at this verse, let me ask this question. What stands out to you? God's people have become complacent. They're apathetic. They, they have ceased in their rebuilding project. The temple, the work, in effect, has been at a standstill for 16 long years. And God said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go. Now, linked to that word go, drop down in the latter part of verse 8. 
He said, I want you to go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified. Here's the point. When we go and do what God has asked of us, he is glorified. The flip side of that is, if we do not do what he says, he can't be glorified. We have to be involved in the work of the kingdom. We have to do everything within our power to advance the cause. Otherwise, God is not glorified. Now look at what God said. Go. Go up to the mountain. We've been involved in the last few weeks in some remodeling. And the purpose of the remodeling has been so that we can have more seating capacity in this auditorium. And if everything works out, my understanding is we might be able to get another 80, 85 people in, in this building. Well, that's great. And I, I am very grateful that the elders made the decision to launch out and do this. I appreciate Steve and his work and Butch as well. I think they did a fabulous job. But listen, God didn't say build and they will come. God said go. If we want to fill this building, we're going to fill this building because we take to heart what God has said in his word. The Great Commission says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. In Mark chapter 16, verse 15, Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Both Matthew and Mark emphasize the go in the gospel. And so if we're going to fill this building, and when we fill this building, that represents human souls. Let me ask this question. Is God interested in human souls? You better know he is. The Bible says God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God would have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. People cannot be saved, they will not be saved if you and I do not go. If we do not take to heart what the Lord has said. It's great that, we've, that we have the vision to expand so we can get more people in here, but we've got to take the initiative to work. And sometimes when, when things are going well, what happens? A law takes place. We become satisfied. We think we've arrived when in effect we haven't arrived. We're, we shouldn't be satisfied. God's not satisfied. God will never be satisfied when the work of the church is not ongoing. The song we sang a moment ago, we will work till what? We'll work till Jesus comes. Now, Jesus may not come in my lifetime, so that means I'll work until death. But if the Lord comes in my lifetime, the, the idea is I'll work till he comes. That ought to be the added, that ought to be our mindset. So, what does it take 
for the work to go forward. Let me give you two characteristics. Number one, I believe that it requires haste on our part in doing the Lord's work. When I say it takes haste, I mean it has to be done today. In 1 Samuel chapter 21 at verse 8, David, the king of Israel, David in the long ago, he made a great observation. He said the king's business required haste. We're talking about a spiritual kingdom and we are serving King Jesus. If the kingdom of David, if you please, if it required haste, then what about the kingdom of Christ? Does it not require haste? Let me share with you a story. It's a, it's a real story about a friend of mine. He and I were having a conversation on one occasion, and this man is extremely evangelistic. He is concerned about the lost, and he has given lots of money to make sure that the gospel of Christ goes out into all the world. And I remember talking to him on one occasion, and I, I want to say he has emphasized this to me on more than one occasion. But we were talking one day, and he was, and he was emphasizing the importance of taking the gospel to the lost. And here's what he said, and I, I don't think I'll ever forget it. He said, when I'm talking about teaching the gospel. He said, I'm not talking about tomorrow. I'm not talking about next week. I'm not talking about next month. I'm not talking about next year. I'm talking about today. I want to know what's going to happen today. Now, when we talk about the Lord's work requires haste, that means it's today. It's not tomorrow. It's not next week. It's not next month. It's not next year. It is today. So many times, members of the body of Christ forget that haste has to be involved. We've got to be diligent. Paul said, be steadfast and movable. Listen to him. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. What is it that robs the church of forward progress? One, procrastination. Another, preoccupation. We either procrastinate doing what we know we ought to do or we're so preoccupied with the world we forget about what we're supposed to be doing. David said the king's business, it requires haste. We ought to see the work of the church as the greatest work on earth. We ought to see it as something that has to be done every day, day in, day out, seven days a week. It ought to be that important. A second thing. If the work of the church is going to go forward, then it requires a heart for doing the Lord's work. If our heart isn't in it, then we can just forget it. If you go back and look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, there are a lot of things that stand out about the sacrifices of the saints in the first century. Paul in that context said they first gave themselves to the Lord. He went on to say that they had a willing mind. 
if the work of the church is going to be what it ought to be, and if we're going to go and if we're going to, to literally turn this city, this county, this state, this region upside down for the cause of Christ, our hearts are going to have to be captured for Christ. The Lord is going to have to be, the, the Lord is going to have to be everything in my life and in your life. One of the songs that we sing he is my everything. I have wondered from time to time, what, what could I say to encourage people to come back Sunday night or Wednesday night? And maybe I'm wrong, but I have come to the conclusion until people realize that Christianity is the hub of life, they're not going to come back on Sunday night. They're not going to come back on Wednesday night. It's got to be the hub. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 4, the apostle Paul said, when Christ, who is our life, is Jesus your life? So many times in the church, we want to give the Lord a slither of our life. The Lord's not interested in a slither of your life or my life. What the Lord wants is my life. He wants my everything. He wants my heart. He wants my affections. Jesus said we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and strength or mind. Do you love him like that? So the king's, the king's work, it requires haste, and it requires a lot of heart. I want to share this with you, and I believe it to be the case. If Jesus could take 12 men and teach them and instruct them, and from those 12 men literally revolutionize the world, then surely he can take us and make a difference in this community. But we have to be willing participants. We have to be willing to be used in the kingdom of God. In Nehemiah chapter 4 at verse 6, Nehemiah encouraged the rebuilding of the wall in Jerusalem. And the Bible says in chapter 4 verse 6, of those people they had a mind to work. We need workers in this congregation. It may be the case that you have filled out a sheet for the eldership and you have identified things that you will do for this congregation. Please listen very carefully. If on that sheet you told the elders that you would teach or you would participate in the worship services or you would do this or you would do that, if they come to you and ask you, will you do that? Please don't say, not right now, or maybe later. If you said you will do something, do it. Do it with all your might. If this church is going to be what it ought to be and what it could be and what it should be, then we have to have a mind for work. It can't just be the eldership. It can't just be the deacons. It can't just be the preachers. It has to be every, every one of us joining hands, working together. 
Go back again and look at Ezra chapter 3, verse 1. The people were together as what? As one. We stand or fall as one. We work together as one. This is a team effort. Everybody has to be on board. Why is it some congregations today are nearly dead because people aren't together as one and they're not working? Why is it some congregations are dead as they can be because they're not together as one and they're not working? God wants to see his people working. He wants to see his people vibrant and active. If you look at Christianity, if you see somebody who says they're a member of the church and they're not doing anything for the cause of Christ, that is not New Testament Christianity. It's not a reflection of New Testament Christianity. When I go back and look at Acts chapter 2 forward, I see people who were on the move. If we're not on the move for the cause of Christ, then something's wrong. What did they need in the day of Haggai? They needed to get, they needed to get, to get back to work. It may be the case that some of us need to get back to work. We may need to go back to work if we're not doing anything. And then thirdly, the actions of the people. Let's note their compliance. Drop down and look at verse 12. As we think about their compliance, what Haggai does is talks about the submission of the people. In verse 12, he said, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtel, and Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest with all the remnant of the, of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord God had sent them. So what did they do? They did what God asked, didn't they? They submitted to his will. Now, Drop down and look at the latter part of verse 12. And the people feared the presence of the Lord. When we have a healthy respect for the Lord and his will, do you know what we'll do? We will obey him. We will do as he asks. It may be that one of the reasons we do not work as we should Maybe one of the reasons we're not as involved as we should is because when it's, all, when it's all said and done, we really don't respect the Lord and his word. These people respected the Lord. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah caught a glimpse of God on his throne. He said, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. The seraphim, cried out, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Isaiah was impressed by what he had seen. The question went forth, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And here's what, I, here's what Isaiah the prophet said, here am I, send me. I believe Isaiah had a healthy respect for Almighty God. If we haven't been in the presence of God, and by that I mean if we haven't been spending time in his word, then it's very easy to become complacent and apathetic. But then note the confirmation. Verse 13. Then Haggai the Lord's messenger spoke to the or rather Haggai the Lord's messenger spoke the Lord's message to the people saying, I am with you. 
Listen again to what, listen again to what God said. I am with you. God will stand by us in whatever projects we undertake for his cause. Go back for just a moment to the book of Joshua. In Joshua chapter 1, God said to Joshua, Moses, my servant, is dead. Joshua was to be the successor to Moses, the great leader and lawgiver of ancient Israel. Here's what God said to Joshua. Go over Jordan. God instructed him to go. Down in, down in about verse 5, God said, As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. When God sent Joshua out to lead his people and to cross the Jordan River to settle in the promised land, God didn't say, All right, Joshua, go, lead the people, and you're on your own. No, God said, You go, and what? I'll be with you. Whatever, whatever we undertake for the cause of Christ, we need to understand the Lord will be with us. We can take that to the bank. When Jesus instructed the, the, the apostles, the disciples, to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, he said, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. God will stand by us in our work. And not just stand by us, but I believe he will support us. We need his support. If we're going to be what we ought to be and if we're, going to, if we're going to literally turn this city upside down for the cause of Christ, all of us have to be on board. I guess within every congregation you have a core group of people. You have some people who are very involved, some people who are not involved at all. And so those of us who are involved, what we have to do is try to reach out to those who are not involved and get them involved. Because God wants all of us to be working and to be laboring. We're going to face some highs and lows, some joys and frustrations, some good times and bad times. How do I know that? Because life, that, that's what life's all about. When things are running well, watch out. Why is that? Because the devil doesn't like success. The devil does not like forward progress in the kingdom of God. So yes, we're going to face some obstacles. Yes, we're going to face some hurdles. But we have the assurance God will be with us. And if we stay true to his word and if we stay true to the course that is laid out for us in this book, I promise you we can do great things. But we can't ever, we can't ever become satisfied. We can't ever get to the point where we, we can just step back and say, you know what, we've arrived. We're where we ought to be. We don't ever want to get like that. I don't think the church at Jerusalem ever got to the point where they said you know what we got, we, we've gotten too big too many members there are always souls to save there are always people to minister to there are always things to do for the kingdom of Christ it is an ongoing effort until Jesus comes generations come and generations go every generation has work to do we're in the present so what do we have to do we've got to keep working Sometimes, for some, the admonition is get back to work. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, our plea to you, come join hands with us. Become a part of the greatest institution known to man. It's the church, the body of Christ. What would you need to do to become a New Testament Christian? Well, you need to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, John 8, 24. You need to repent of your sins, Luke 13, 3. 
Confess his name before others, Acts 8, verse 37. And then be immersed in, watery, in water so that every sin can be washed away, Acts 22, 16. When you do that, you'll become a member of the church, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. And the promise is, if you live faithfully, the Lord will bestow on you the crown of life, Revelation 2, at verse 10. If you're here and you're not faithful, we want to encourage you to come home. Maybe you're not what you ought to be. Maybe you're not where you ought to be. Now, the beauty of Christianity is God gives second chances. God will take you back. Look at the prodigal son. The Bible says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Would you come as we stand and sing?